promised here is part two of our all questions episode we'll be doing another episode soon on recent developments like the plagiarism and the sloan l article but for now enjoy the rest of your questions guys and enjoy this episode of no challenges remaining hosted by ben rothenberg and courtney nowin so we got a question from alexis and this goes back to some issues we talked about a year and plus a little bit on the show uh, when Jason Collins became the first NBA player to come out. And this week, those sort of issues came up again with Ian Thorpe, who I think for my money has to be the most prominent uh, athlete to have come out as gay male athlete so far. I mean, when you talk about sort of the Olympics and swimming, he's easily, I think, the second most prominent person of the century, so of this current century, so far behind only Michael Phelps. And so even though he's no longer active, it seemed like a pretty high-profile thing, and this is an old question, but it seemed like a time to bring it back again, talk about this in tennis. So Alexis asks a lot of different points, but basically to fly through them, um, is there a significant cultural difference between the ATP and WTA on this issue? Um, is this an issue that ATP WTA are proactively thinking about, or will some take someone stepping up and pushing the envelope? Um, is there a Hollywood-style open secret culture within the tennis world, i.e. it's in a world in which you can live your life so long as you keep it private from the broader public? Uh, Alexis says, my perception obviously skewed is that tennis has a significant LGBT fan base. Is that something that's generally understood in the tennis world? And how does that affect how ATP WTA think about it? Is there something about the tennis world that is different than other sports? E.g. it's so international, which can cut both ways. Uh, Gay marriage is is legal in a number of countries with significant representation in the tennis world, but still criminalized in other settings where events occur, e.g. Qatar, arguably not as obsessed with masculinity as other sports. And so generally, is there anything that prohibits or deters players from discussing this or any other hot button issue? And where do you as commentators on the sport fit into this? Are these the kind of issues you raise when you speak to people within the sport? Or do you steer clear? And if so, why? And that's a lot of questions, but it's actually a very condensed version of the uh, email we got from Alexis. So thank you, Alexis. Anywhere in particular you want to start on this issue, Courtney? Ah, I don't know. There's Um, a lot there. There's a lot there. And I think that it's stuff that needs to be discussed. I mean, I definitely, I mean, I I think you and I discuss it quite a bit, Ben. And I know that, that, that we talk about kind of gay issues within the locker rooms a bit. You know, I've, I've mentioned it to players just to kind of get their sense of things Mm -hmm. as well as tour, tour officials and things. And, and I think so many of the points that were made as questions are, yeah. I mean, the answer is in a lot of ways, yes. You know, I mean, on one level, the sport is really great because it can be so progressive because it is so individualistic. So in other words, what one player does doesn't really police what another player does. There's no, you know, kind of league coming, cracking down. You, can't get, you can't get fired for your personal life. Exactly. Sense. Everybody yeah. is an independent contractor. Yeah. So everybody can live their life and play their game and set their own schedule. I mean, it's pretty great. And because of that, there is a lot of freedom. And I, and I think that, uh, you know... It, on the W, I mean, it's harder to say with the, I, there is obviously a very big cultural difference between WTA and ATP with respect to gay issues. I think obviously because WTA just has more openly gay players, you know, from the past who are, you know, whether it's Billie Jean King or Martina Navratilova, who... And, and who are some of the most prominent exactly. lesbians in the world. They're not like these, these like, just like, oh some random player, right, right, who's, like, toiled away in the top 300s and you would never have known. I mean, these are, the, you know, Amelie Moresmo. Right. With all due respect uh, to Jason Collins, he was not anybody right. who the vast majority of Americans had even come close to having heard of right. when he came out. Right. So, no, totally true. So, yeah, it's it's different in that way. So because of that, a little bit more culture of acceptance, I think, within the, the women's locker room. I think that's the case in all women's sports. I know for myself, like I was a three sport athlete through high school and you know, like there were girls who were gay who were in the locker room. And you, at first you just didn't know what to do with it. Cause that's your first like, kind of like, Oh, okay. And then it just became like, yeah, okay. And it was, it was over. It was over that quickly. And you just kind of accepted each other's teammates and it was fine. So I kind of feel like that's the same way it is within the WTA. I think that there are a lot of players who are gay, um, who do just live their lives. They're 
under the radar a little bit. No one's, you know, really cares one way or the other. I think Ben and I were telling a story, was it last year in Charleston? I think it was, I think, yeah, we told the story last time on the podcast, essentially about seeing a player uh, in victory, like kissing her girlfriend. And it was not a player whose personal life we probably had spent one iota second <laughs> thinking about. And we were just sort of like, oh, okay. And just sort of moved on with our lives. Yeah, we were literally walking back to the press center, just like chit-chatting. And like we turned our heads, we're like, oh, all right, anyways. And so that's yeah. kind of a little bit of, of how the WTA is, I think, in a lot of ways. And you talk to the other players. I mean, I, I've, I've yet to speak to another female player who was like, it's wrong and it's disgusting. And like, they're just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't know. It's very libertarian up in that locker room. Yeah, I know it is. And it's just a very, you know, live and let live sort of situation, really, for lack of a better term. And I do think the sort of geography issues that Alexis raises in his question are interesting because, yeah, this this thing. I mean, if you're going to be an out gay tennis player, male or female, you are going to have your home country to deal with in terms of media, probably first and foremost. But you're also going to go to a lot of countries where it's less progressive, whether that is Russia or the Middle East or... Even like, I mean, Australia's, even though that's because we're at the Thorpe thing, sort of time this question around, Th- Australia's, from our experience there, I think it's probably fair to say it's well behind the US and a lot of Western Europe on these issues in terms of how they perceive it, especially with the sort of sports machismo that goes on there. Yeah, it's, it's a totally different situation than it is if you're in the NBA or something or a more sort of contained environment because you're around people from all around the world, you yourself are all around the world. And yeah, it's it's tough. You never know if you go to if you're a player who's out and you could go to Qatar and get arrested or something. Could happen. Right. You never know. So yeah, so I think that part of it's interesting too. The other thing that Alexis said about the LGBT fan base in tennis is definitely true as well. It's I think it seems from all of my experiences in the sport, uh, in person, online, whatever, clearly that's a major demographic for tennis fans and something that I think Definitely, I think the tennis establishment understands on some level, maybe not as much as they should, but they definitely get it on some level. How that handles, how they, how that influences how they handle player issues, I don't know. But yeah, I think there is sort of an open secret envelop, uh, environment to it. And I was reading things about Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova essentially a few a while ago, and they essentially both on some level or not got somewhat outed in terms of the timing of how their announcements came. And that's something that hasn't happened in tennis in the last few decades. I mean, no one has tried to out players who they could. It could happen, but it just yeah. hasn't. And I think that shows a lot of evolution on the sort of media side of things and just general respect for people's uh, lives that on this arena might not have always existed in the 80s or whenever else these things happened. The worrisome thing that I find about that um, is only that I worry, and maybe this is just the cynical side of me, but I worry that it then puts so much power in the media's hands. I mean, there are players, you know, who, who, yeah, they live their lives. They don't hide anything. But at the same time, you know, if you talk to them off the record, they're like, I'm not talking about it. I'm not coming out. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And you're like, okay, and that's fine. And so you're like, okay, then whatever. And I just wonder if like, you know, if you had a less savory media organization who was like, either you give us an exclusive on this or else we're going to publish this. And, and out you yeah. like that that becomes really really worrisome to me whereas like i guess in the past like it was just basically like completely cutthroat yeah so it was just like yeah we're gonna out you <laughs> you know and, yeah and there's and no reason it couldn't but... happen i mean especially if you look at the kind of things the kind of things that happened at the end of wimbledon this year with like them dragging up the bouchard robson uh, frenemy situation there's no reason that if certain players make deep runs at wimbledon that these stories don't come out then yeah and so they just don't always control they you don't always have control of your own timeline as much as you might think. Yeah, I mean ideally, you know, for those players like if it is an issue, they get to the point where they realize it's an issue and they can at that point wrench back control and, you know, tell their story the way that they want to tell it as opposed to, to putting it in somebody else's hands, but yeah. you never know when someone's going to open their mouth in a press conference and there you yeah. go. That, like that or players or your fellow players, you know, things like that. But for the most, I mean, I don't really see that nowadays it's, it's a particular, I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's almost a non-issue. And I speak in specific, specifically of just the WTA locker room yeah, because the ATP locker room is a different thing. And I don't really know as much about kind of the goings ons and, and, but you know, from everything that and I it's hear, different because I don't think, at least I can say of the current top, 
I don't know, 100 players. There's no, as far as I'm aware, any open secret situation that I know about. So, right. and I could be wrong, obviously, on that. But I, well, I, I know that I don't know about it, but there could be stuff I don't know, obviously. It's just different. And it is that way in sort of all sports and has been for quite a while. Well, the, you know, a men's locker room is always going to have more of the testosterone, more of the machismo, more of the like, yeah, dude, like I just nailed this. Girl. I mean, there's just so much pride taken in like the stuff that those boys are able to do at like bars and who they mm-hmm. take home and, you know, and all these sorts of things. I mean, they're basically like kids in a locker room. You know what I mean? Like if you think of like a high school locker room. So it's not a particularly welcoming situation. And, and the guys, as opposed to the girls, I mean, and I'm not saying this is like complete opposites because... I go out of my way to make sure that this is not seen to be the case. But the guys, they kind of are all up in each other's business a little bit more. They're, you know, much more kind of collegial in the locker room. Yeah. The women, they're collegial with the type, their, their group of friends. So there's a lot more kind of just like almost like tribes in the women's locker room. Yep. And they're still friendly and professional, but there's more just like groups. And so you can actually kind of avoid people more. I feel like in the WTA locker room than the men's locker room. That's true. I mean, you need practice partners. You need to be just sort of, you're not usually, especially if you're a lower ranked player, you're more men traveling completely alone and there are women. It's it's harder to be an island for the men. Right. And so yeah. with the girls, like if you are gay and you just don't want to deal with anything, like you can just like kind of do that. Like you don't actually, like no one has to really know. You can just be kind of like doing your own thing and the girls are like, okay, whatever. Whereas with the guys, if you had like this lone wolf, like they'd, kind of try to bring you into the group on some way or shape or form and then there's no hiding any secrets at that point yeah and who knows maybe and you could easily find a group that was totally didn't care and blase about the whole thing but you also might not i don't know it it would be interesting i feel like that group group would be andy murray and that's (laughs) very possibly we got a couple questions on a relate on a on related topics to each other first one from mike jansen who asks us, Sloan Stevens? Does that count as a question? And also from Tyler Green, WTF is going on with the Sloan coaching situation. Is Anna Cone out? If so, who pulled the ripcord? And who might be next? Um, so we can use that to talk about Sloan and just sort of the whole general coaching carousel because there are a few openings now at WTA, especially Sloan. Lena has uh, split up with Carlos Rodriguez because he went back to her his academy in China. Anna Ivanovich split up with her coach, Nemanja, which I think was actually the most surprising of all three situations because they were doing so well together this year. Although Anna has not been one to keep coaches very long, frequently anyway. Really? Yeah. She had Nigel for a couple years. She was with Gunther, uh, the German one for a couple years. It's not like she's not Caroline. Everybody's making her out to be Caroline. No, I mean, but she's still... She's had some turnover in her career. Above average yeah. turnover rate, I think. Some turnover. For a high-profile player. Some turnover. I just blanch at the idea that she's, like, tearing through coaches, like, three coaches a year. Okay. Well, in any event, let's start with Sloan and go to the rest of them. The Sloan situation, we were on a conference call with her. She said that she's still working with uh, with Paul Anacone. I think both you and I have heard things that might not be the case elsewhere. What's up with Sloan and on court and off and... How does this whole section of the WTA coaching carousel wind up? I don't think that she's with Anna Cohn anymore. Yeah. I will just go out and say that. I think, I mean, she was asked point blank and she said, we're still working together. And I haven't made any changes. She said, I haven't made any changes. That was the first thing. And I was automatically like, well, that doesn't mean that you aren't going to make changes. So then I asked her, is your current intention to continue to work with Paul through the summer? And she said, yes, in a very unconvincing way. So I'm pretty convinced that he's not working with her. Um, okay. In terms of coaching carousel, who knows? I mean, I think that she needs somebody who obviously is, is a bit tougher than Paul. Paul's a very nice nice guy, you know, very kind of gentle, very cerebral in the way that he approaches coaching and, and approaches tennis. Yeah. And don't think that's where Sloan is right now. And she just needs kind of someone who's almost a pure motivator, almost like a, a Rashid-like person. So I wouldn't be surprised if she gets somebody like, you know, kind of, like with an Aussie mentality to, to come on board with her. But in terms of what's happening with her, I mean, has anything really changed? No, I think it's just sort of steadily gone downhill slowly. Yeah. I mean, we talked about her after she lost Wimbledon a little bit on our mid-Wimbledon show. And obviously no status changed since then, really, in terms of her tennis because she hasn't played. But yeah, I mean, this has been a regression of a year. She's out of the top 20. She's losing ground to players like Madison. And she's just training the wrong way. And that's all it's about. Remember, she was an alternate in Istanbul last year, 
And that seems very distant in terms of her being in that sort of range. Yeah, most definitely. And the thing about Sloane is that she's a tough nut to crack because she's not saying anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, all, all that we can really gauge is like, okay, well, we watch her matches. Yeah, she's very not forthcoming. She's right. Really but in press, you know, she's not saying anything. So it becomes very difficult to really know what's going on in her head, you know. And But she's definitely, I mean, right now kind of pit against Bouchard in terms of like their mentalities are so completely opposite. And the way that they talk about their careers, you know, Bouchard being unapologetically ambitious, wanting everything now, saying that at 20 years old, she already feels old you know, all these sorts of things. And, you know, like Sloan, who's like, I've got a really long career ahead of me. You know, I just got to be patient. You know, tomorrow, next week's another tournament. I got plenty of time. Those, you know, it, it's very kind of, it's it's really interesting kind of how those two play, play against each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i sorry. I don't really have much new to say about Sloan. I mean, no, I, until fair. she gets somebody new in her, her coaching group, that can motivate her and transform her into someone who is willing to do all the hard work and do everything and sacrifice everything that it takes to maximize her talent. The jury's out. Let's move to the other coaches then. Cause I think that's totally right. And there isn't much new to say per se um, about Sloan, but on Anna, uh, Elizabeth Laughlin asks, do you think she will look for another low profile, low profile coach, which she says she's more comfortable with or another high profile one. And will the coaching change affect the rest of her season? And I don't think, I think it's fair to say we both, I mean, I definitely at least thought because I'd talked to Anna a few times this season, one on one, and um, she was very, very, very high on her current situation, how comfortable she felt in it. So I didn't see this split coming at all. Obviously, contracts end and money disputes happen, whatever. But I was surprised. I was pretty blindsided by that one. And yeah, I, I think that I don't know why she would change something midstream in what has been her best season in the last five or six. So yeah, it, no, it, it it makes no sense. Contich's contract was up. They had signed on with each other right after Wimbledon last year. Obviously, one year for a one-year contract. That contract was up at the end of Wimbledon. They chose not to renew yeah. is the story. Definitely, same as you, very, very surprised, especially just with how effusively she spoke about his ability. I mean, you and I were both there in Birmingham when she won the title about how important it was to have a coach who finally was cool with the fact that she needed to chill out in her off time. And it wasn't always about tennis. And, and it was okay to have fun. And and the thing that really surprised me is that, like, look, I know that the, the traveling, the tour is a grind, and it's not built for everyone. I mean, everybody's like, oh, why doesn't this person coach? Why doesn't that person coach? Because you got to go hotel to hotel for 11 months out of the year. It's not fun, you know? Mm-hmm. But I just remember, like, seeing him at, at various times, like, kind of in social situations, like at, at player parties or, you know, in the player lounge. And he looked like he was having a good time. Yeah. Like, he didn't look like a guy who was, like, run down. And he was, the thing that Anna talked about a little bit, and I think this shows, I wouldn't say ego from her, because it's never a word I would really use readily at all with Anna, but that she sort of liked that it was more like he was excited to be working with her, yeah. and not that the coach thought it was the vice versa situation. Like, Nemanja is a, Kontic is a uh, Serbian player who is not, a, obviously, a, any sort of world-renowned player. And got to work with Anna Ivanovic, and he probably felt like he'd won the lottery getting to do that. And I think she appreciated feeling appreciated on that level. And appreciated being able to be in a position where she felt like she called the shots. Yeah. And so, yeah, so the split doesn't really, I, we'll see what she has to say about it when we see her. Um, I guess you'll see her in Stanford. Is she in Stanford? Yep. Okay, so we'll talk to her then. We'll get the story. Me and the me and the NorCal tennis writing crew will get the story out. That is like a hotbed of tennis writing, FYI. (laughs) It really is. That is like the, um, I'm trying to think of what. Yeah. Well, Joel Drucker calls it the Spain of U.S. tennis journalism. That's probably fair. So I'm pretty alone in D.C., or relatively in terms of people who actually travel with the tour. I'm kind of, I'm kind of like the, uh, I don't know, what country do I analogize to? I'm probably like the, <laughs> the Great Britain. <laughs> There's me and no one else in the top 200. <laughs> or the Latvia. Yeah, the Latvia. Um, there you go. That's better. Yeah. No, I'm definitely the Mark Lopez of that group. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it, too. I, I, could, I think you're kind of the Carla, personally. Oh, uh, how dare you. <laughs> um, and then we got a question from uh, Stephen Brown, who asks uh, who Lena's next coach should be. And Game Set Tweets adds, would you be surprised if Lena retired within the next 12 to 18 months? I wouldn't. I would not. I would be. No, at I this would point- not. At this point, if I had to put money on it, I would put money on Lee Na retiring at the end of the year. Wow. If I had to put money on like a 50-50 like bet, yes or no, you know, like a binary bet, I would bet yes. So it doesn't even make it to Australia to defend? 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I think that losing Carlos is a very, very big deal. He was the motivator, and he was the one that made her believe in herself, and he was the one that was instituting changes in her game that she trusted. And I just don't know if there's another coach out there that is going to bring that to her game. Um, and I also do think that the only thing really that was that she still needed on her resume was getting to number one. And I think that's off the table now because of poor performance at the, yeah. the French and Wimbledon. And so without that as a motivator, I do think that sends this year into a bit of a tailspin because, you know, she's number two. She already won a slam. She got a second slam. Yeah, she got a second slam, which is already two more than we'd ever thought she'd ever have. She's a Hall of Fame lock at this point. She's a Hall of Fame lock for sure. She's getting paid bank. Why? I don't know. I just don't know why she would keep going. I really don't. Without Carlos. I mean, if Carlos was always there, I absolutely understand why she would keep going. I think that's the voice that she needs to believe that there is more in her tennis. But without that voice, a, a voice that she trusted and respected and, and really reinvented her entire career simply because she was like, here's the guy who coached Justine Hennon and he believes in me. Yeah. Without that, I, I just don't know. I don't know if she's long for this tennis it's, world. It's a very crucial American summer coming up for her in terms of her whole her whole psyche. And because like, she's admitted that she's been close to retiring before, at least contemplating it. And so we'll see. Yeah. So hopefully she hangs on selfishly for me because I just like watching her and having Agreed. her around. Uh, so getting a little more time out of her would be would be appreciated. One more year. One more one more year. One, one more, more year. year. Yeah. One more year and retire in Wu at Wuhan in 2015. There you go. That's not bad. It's pretty exciting for Wuhan coming up, getting Lina. That is the biggest thing, biggest sporting event ever in Wuhan. Is a women's tennis tournament. I am like I'm trying to get my way to Wuhan just to go to the Lena Open. I think it'd be fun. I just want to see. I just want to see. I just think that that's gonna be like a scene. Yeah. Like it's gonna be something that like I don't think that like I will have expected to see. So that would be pretty cool. That is pretty cool indeed. One question that's here that I thought was sort of interesting is related to this story. I think probably you bageled about. I think you're aware of of this Petra Kvitova being criticized by a Czech politician for living in Monaco for tax reasons. And Michelle Benson asks us, what the hell was this about? (laughs) So so ridiculous. Michelle gets it. So, um, but I do think it's a little bit interesting. I don't think we ever really talked about it on the show, just sort of the ethics behind tennis players being serial tax dodgers, which they are. I mean, so many tennis players pick where they live, whether it's Monaco Switzerland, even Florida on some levels because of advantageous tax situations there. And as multi-million dollar athletes, do they have an obligation to their home countries to pay back or give some sort of money to that? I mean, it goes into this whole sort of taxing philosophy debate about economy and whatever you want to talk about. But do you think that it's fair for players to be criticized for their tax filings? choices in life um okay this is complicated now that you now that you frame it that way yes i think they should should be open to being criticized yes okay i think so too at the same time i just think that it's so stupid because it's like if you're gonna critique like somebody you should be critiquing them all the time like you shouldn't be critiquing them just because they want a freaking slam and it because and their name is now in the headlines and you want to make yourself famous and so you're going to critique Petra Kvitova. And then, like, buried in the story, it's like, Thomas Burdick also lives, like, in Monaco and Lucy Safarova. And, like, you know, everybody, because yeah. everybody fucking does it. Everybody. Everybody Every- fucking does it. So either you, you if you want to critique it, you can critique the whole thing and the concept of it. And 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 I do, on some level, agree with that. I think that, you know, you may, the rich should pay their taxes. That's just what I think, you know? Yeah. Like, that's just how it is. And I don't think that you should be able to, just because you pick up and you move and you live somewhere else, that you should be able to to avoid that while still flying your flag of like, you know, like I understand why Novak lives in, in Monaco because living in, in Serbia was probably untenable given his stature in that yeah. country. Mm-hmm. And facilities the, available in yeah, Serbia. But at the same time, there is some, kind of something weird about like, you know, waving the Serbian flag and not paying the Serbian taxes. And it's interesting if, if Djokovic fancies a sort of political career for himself post-tennis, which I think a lot of people sort of expect 
him to pursue if that will become a campaign issue. I don't know. I have no idea what Serbian politics are like in terms of campaigns. Something tells me that that in America, you'd be toast. Yeah, no, that's, that was a Mitt Romney situation would, with like offshore banks tax, or whatever else. Tax, yeah, there would be tax truthers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so. But yeah, I, I have a feeling that Novak can do whatever the hell he wants to do in Serbia when all, the, all this is said and done. And and rightfully so, and that's fine. But it does it. I'm not, I would be lying if I said that I, I never thought about it. I mean, and, and uh, in certain situations, yeah, okay, fine. It makes sense. Like, you know, Victoria Azarenko, she lives in Monaco. She grew up in the States. She's, I mean, she returns home to Minsk to see her parents and her brother and her grandmother. But outside of that, has Belarus had done anything to kind of help her, help her or raise her to where she needs to be paying her tax money to the country? Probably not. So I understand the whole flip side of the argument. There's just something kind of just, I don't know, like, kind of knee-jerky mm-hmm. reaction I guess I have where I'm like but you do get benefits out of being Serbian Novak and Anna and Petra and, and Thomas and you know like it's like but you you fly the flag like you should probably pay money back or hopefully you you put some money into the federation I don't know maybe they do other stuff I don't know their entire finances but I should hope that there is some sort of mechanism where some of the money that they're winning does go like back into making things in their, their, their home cities or their countries or their federations or their local clubs better. I just thought it was sort of an interesting moment to be like a little bit like devil's advocate about and be like, yeah, maybe there is something unethical about, because we take it as such as such, you know, basic accepted fact that tennis players dodge taxes like mofos. And yet Americans don't. They move to Florida. Almost all of well, them are. Florida. No, I, I know that. I know that. For example, I was talking to a commentator who was once calling an Andy Roddick match, mm-hmm. and she said something like, "You know, Andy Roddick's here. He uh, listed as living in Austin, Texas, or listed as living in Florida, but really he lives in Austin." And she got some like angry call from the agent the next day, be like, "You can't say he lives in Austin because he's been in Florida for tax reasons." And stop saying that, you know. So it's been going on for a while. And, but that uh, makes sense. But see, for whatever reason, I don't know. Is within this... the U.S., is different to you. You know what? Maybe this is totally, there's an abs, I mean, this is probably completely illogical what I'm about to say. Okay. And I'm just going to own up to that right now. I'm excited for it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, first of all, at least some of the money is going to go, you still pay federal income tax. Yeah. Regardless of what state you live in, right? Mm-hmm. So at least yeah. some of the money is going to the federal government. And then to the extent that you do train and use the freeways of Florida and the public yeah, I mean, you pay those taxes and should you have to pay that in Austin? But if he's like staying, you know, nine months out of the year in Austin and only three months out of the year in Florida, that's messed up. That's definitely that's definitely a tax evasion issue. <laughs> there we go. So that that has been our weekly tax summary of the. And that's your no challenges remaining tax corner sponsored you, by TurboTax. There you go. That's our first sponsor. We should send them a bill. We should. Or just tell them, please don't. You know, audit us. The IRS to audit us. There you go. I'm sure they can help us out with that. <laughs> we got a question from Renaissance uh, who asked us about Wimbledon press moderation, which was a big issue inside the press room at Wimbledon. Uh, maybe I'm not sure how many people outside of the press room picked up on it, but it, luckily we're getting very huffy about it inside the room. He asks, why do they allow intrusive personal questions and forbid poop talk? Uh, more seriously put, how does their moderating operate in general and how does it compare to other slams in terms of pressers? Uh, the poop reference is to a Andy Murray first round press conference in which there was a moderator who is a club member. And that's one of the things I'll say is that all the moderators at Wimbledon for the press conferences, almost all in the main room anyway, are members of the All England Club who are usually fancy pants people in Britain somewhere, whether they're bankers or some sort of other society aristocrat type fellow and all men actually interestingly there's never been a female moderator that i've seen never been never seen never seen one and this particular one was very very uh had a lot of input into answers and uh would, andy would say something he was and he would say like very well said andy very nice or something and he would and then someone asked him about a comic book uh that andy had been like the guest editor of which was sort of goofy and fun i saw a copy of it somewhere i think you had it actually someone gave it to you yeah and he said like please only tennis questions after that one even though no mind and you heard that. like a rumbling of scoffing like in the room of just like, what? British people know how to scoff. I'll they really that. do. As they're a, so good at it. As a people, they scoff quite well. Scoff. Like they're, they're gold medalist scoffers. They do, in, they do indignance and quiet, undisru- undisruptive Seething. indignance really yeah. well. Yes. Seething indignance. 
And uh, whereas if it was like New York, people would just start screaming. Yeah. So those are some differences. Anyway, he was asked about, he was playing Blas Rolla in the next round. And Blas Rolla had said his last thing in press was like, he was just hoping to go out there and, you know, hope he didn't poop his pants or something when he was on center court against Andy Murray. And he was asked by a reporter, uh, you know, Blas said he hopes he doesn't poop himself. What are your thoughts on that? Which I thought was a fair question because it was related to the next match on some level. It was, first of all, related to the next match. Andy could have just been like, okay, I'm going to preview the next match. Or it could have related, you know, turned up a funny quote. But it was was clever. Exactly. It was clever. And to be fair, for those of you who remember the second round match, it wasn't clear when it was over if Blas had pooped himself or not because he was terrible. So, I mean, it was sort of a relevant line of questioning as history proved. But yeah, so Courtney, how does that, how do press conferences get moderated, I guess, and how does Wimbledon differ, and why is it a good or bad thing? Yeah, no, it's it's an incisive question um, from Renee, just because Wimbledon is incredibly different. Yeah. So most um, you know tournaments, obviously outside of the year, outside of the majors, uh, typically uh, press conferences are moderated by either the ATP or the WTA specifically. They're and they're communications that, reps. Yeah. They're communications people. They generally don't really step in, honestly. Very um, and then, In addition. Basically, when you make requests for interviews when at any other tournament, uh, you make them outside of the slams, you make them through the tours. So you submit your, your request to Kevin Fisher if he's there, or you submit your request to Nicole Arzani if he's there. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the whole process. And you work with these people, and you work with them throughout the entire year, you know. So they know you, you know them. Sometimes there's some horse trading. Maybe you can't talk to that player this week. But, you know, when I see you in a couple of weeks, I'll try and get them for you there. Things like that. Um, Wimbledon is a completely separate system because the All England Club refuses to let the ITF run the communications group. Which they do at the other three slams. At the other three slams, it's through the ITF, which they also work with ATP and WTA. But generally, even at least there... You recognize the ITF people, you've established relationships with the ITF folks, and you know you can kind of work with them. But Wimbledon is a completely different thing. And for the record, the ITF folks, especially Nick Imason, who runs the desk at the three other slams, so good at what they do. Because it's an unbelievable deluge of requests that he gets. And he sort of manages all the strings of this ridiculous puppet theater so flawlessly and tirelessly. And he gets it all. And so when you come to Wimbledon, People who only do it once a year, there's immediately so many hiccups. And it's not their fault, but it's just they're just not as prepared for it as a Nick would be. And Wimbledon has said they don't want to hand it over to the ITF. Yeah, they don't want to hand it over to the ITF. So basically, you have to like, there's all these crazy, this year they tried to institute all these crazy rules. Like, if you want to submit an interview request with any player, this includes press conferences. Must be by noon. It must be by noon of that day. And I'm like, what the hell? And everybody was flipping out because everybody's like, what the hell are you talking about? Maybe I don't want to talk about Christina McHale or I don't want to like submit a request to Christina McHale at noon before she's going to play Serena Serena because we assume that she's going to lose. And then she's like, turns out to win. And then I come back and you really going to tell me, Oh, you should have submitted your request before. Because honestly, if Christina McHale lost, I probably wouldn't want to talk to her, but now you've requested her in and this is just an entirely awkward situation. (laughs) So it's, it's just insane. Anyways, all that is to say it's run by the club. And one of the things that they do, as Ben mentioned, is that the moderators are members of the club. Okay, these are not tennis people. No. Per se. They're just members of a club that wear a suit and tie very well. Um, And yeah, I mean, they they just, you know, there were a couple of complaints from some of the female journalists that I heard a couple of times where they're like, they were feeling like they were just getting completely looked over because you have to like raise your hand and then the the, uh, moderator kind of points at you and whatever. And there were quite a few different female journalists who were like, I raised my hand. He, it's like he looked right through me. Mm. There were like some moderators who would like zone out in the middle of the, the press conference. Yeah, and like stop looking for people. They would stop looking. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You had and one job. They, yeah, one job, dude. One job. Raise hands, point at people. That's all you had to do. So, yeah, there's there's all that. So there's that aspect of things at Wimbledon, which is, which is very frustrating. Um, I don't think that anybody who is in the press room likes their system at the All England Club. It's just, there's an incredible amount of red tape and it's unnecessary and it's inefficient. And it's just different for the sake of being different because they think that being different is somehow special and unique and Wimbledonly. And I just mean, like, this, there's a system that works globally, just use it. This yeah. year with the transcripts. Yeah, they had a totally different transcript delivery oh, system. 
And so basically the way that they did the system was like the transcribers like transcribed it and at every other tournament they just send the transcript to you directly the minute that it's done. So literally like within five minutes of the end of a press conference, you have it in your inbox. And this year Wimbledon wanted to like send it out from a central, their own All England Club central office. But for whatever reason, like A, it took you like days or hours or days to even get on the list to get them sent to you. And B... They kept landing in my spam box. Yeah, they couldn't figure that out. They couldn't figure that out. And I was just like, they're all going to my spam. So I'd be like, where's Rafa? I haven't seen Rafa for like four hours. And it's like sitting in my spam folder. And they kept and they kept doing things like putting them in different formats from different addresses. Oh. So they kept coming from new sources. It was just a mess. And it, it's but a mess. anyway, so what we're saying is Wimbledon, learn from what everyone else does. You don't always have to be different. Yeah. And yeah, just go with the idea because they're pretty awesome. Yes. At, at what they do. On but, then, but I will say, though, getting back to Renee's question, I, there, it, it does go both ways because I do think at the same time, obviously, the system of moderating the press conferences and setting up press conferences is really messed up at, at Wimbledon. But also the Wimbledon interview room is the weirdest interview room of all four majors, in my opinion, in terms of the wacky questions. And oh, yeah. Because it's the whole British tabloid press is in there who they're asking questions just to get a rise out of the players sometimes or to try and get some sort of controversial quote. They're asking um, people like when Barbara is all of a shirts of a beat Lena, they asked her like one of her questions she got was like, do you ever wear colored underwear? She was like, what? Yes. <laughs> she was she was weirdly unfazed by it because she's kind of, <laughs> un, she's kind of she was first to take them and she was like, no, I know the answer to this question. Yes, I do. <laughs> and then, yeah. And they just sort of, Wimbledon has separate tabloid divisions, essentially, of newspapers which come, which are called the news reporters there. And I use, I'm using quotation fingers with news, if you can't see me. News. Um, who come to ask questions to try to get more sensationalized stories, which I'm sure you guys see all sorts of come out. And right. so um, it is a different minefield they're navigating. At and, a lot of times it, and, and most, 99.9% of the time, those "Quote unquote" news reporters know nothing about tennis. They don't try. They don't pretend to. They don't pretend to. They don't even. They know nothing. They don't pretend to. They're. I mean, we Ben and I both sit near the a whole group of tabloid reporters, and some of the conversations that they would be having, I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna go over there and punch you in the face. Like it's so, just obnoxious and and like yeah, it's crazy. And if you read a transcript from Wimbledon, you can pretty much tell who's asking what. Yeah. Any questions about you know? If Andy Murray feels jealous when his plays against Deliciano or something, like yeah, you know who's asking that. It's funny though because it's funny to see them scheme. Yeah, like they, they put so much they, effort into it. They put so much effort into it. They're like, okay, we're gonna ask Andy Murray about Feliciano Lopez and about Judy Murray, and so I'll sit over here and you sit over there, and I'm gonna ask this question, and then a couple questions later, you ask this question, and like we'll bounce it off each other. And I'm like, oh my word, the collusion. Which is fine. It's entertaining. I'm like, okay, whatever. But it is really frustrating, though, because then, you know, you are kind of in that situation where you're like, you kind of end up raising your hand and you're like, anyways, back to your tennis match. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and, and obviously people read and see some of that stuff and they think that that's how all the press conferences are and that's how all the journalists are. are. It's like, we're not all that way. Sometimes we all have brain farts, but we're not all systematically that way. Here's a question for you. I've heard people say that they wish the reporters' names were attached to questions on transcripts. How would you feel about that? I don't mind, but I just also don't think that it's about the reporter. Yeah. But they just think that it would, on some level, make people more accountable for their questions, I guess. You shouldn't be accountable for a question. People should be accountable for answers, not for questions. I can ask any damn question I want. Okay. I think yeah. I should shame. I mean, you shouldn't be shaming people for asking questions. And you know, and, and you and I have talked about this a bunch of times. There are people who ask, who are in that press room, who ask notoriously horrible questions consistently, questions, consistently to where we roll our eyes like crazy. The players know it, whatever. And ev out of every ten times they ask a really shitty question, one of the answers is amazing, and we all end up using it. So. I don't, I don't know. I, I think the whole idea of like, let's like shame reporters by naming them is kind of dumb. I would agree. I mean, I don't, I, but I, that said, I don't mind. I mean, if that was the case, if I had to be like, I wouldn't make any then, major adjustments. If that no, was I don't case, care. No. I mean, I don't still ask the questions that I ask, but I just think that this, I, that the, the idea behind it, which is, oh, let's, let's shame people and make them think twice before they ask a stupid question. Stupid questions get great answers. A lot of so, times they do. 
And yeah. if anything, it would just for us work out being like people would tweet us being like, "Wow, you two are the only ones at Simona Halep's press conference, huh?" Yeah, 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 we yes, were. We were. Yeah. Yes, we were. So there you go. Yes. Yeah. The number of WTA press conference transcripts that are the entirety of Ben and I lobbying back and forth because no one else could be bothered is quite a few. Yeah. To the point where I feel like even Simona is amused by it because she like sits down and she sees the two of us and she's like, obviously. Obviously, these two. Why these won't they two. leave? Why won't they leave me alone? Why won't they stop asking me about tactics? That's my question. I always ask her about tactics. But That's just you. That's just me. I ask her about shopping. Uh, so now we are turning to the longest stretch of tennis that's held in the U.S., which is obviously our home country, and we like it quite a bit here in America. Kevin Incandenza asks us, um, aside from the obvious U.S. Open and Masters event, which North American tournaments are your favorite and why? And I think I'll kind of undo his aside from, and I'll throw them all sort of in one pot, just because there aren't that many non-U.S. Uh, Open Masters events. So sort of... Of the U.S. tournaments that you've been to, Courtney, and I think you've been to most of them, I guess you haven't been to, I guess, D.C. D.C., Atlanta. Winston-Salem. Winston, basically East Coast outside of... You've been to New Haven? I went to New Haven, but outside of that, nothing else. Houston, I guess. Um, Yeah. Oh, you're throwing Houston in? You're taking all... Okay, or we can just do U.S. Open Series, sure. Yeah. Okay, Okay, of U.S. Open Series tournaments, what do you like? What do you not like? What's the strength and weaknesses? Etc. I love Cincy. Yeah. I think that honestly, if you're going to go to one U.S. tennis tournament, and this includes the U.S. Open, if you're going to go to one, just go to Cincy. Does that include uh, Indian Wells, even? Well, no, we're talking U.S. Open series. Okay, U.S. Open series, sure. Right. That's why. I mean, if otherwise, you have, I mean, I think I'd have to say Indian Wells. But yeah, I, I think that for the summer stretch, in terms of seeing like hard court, summer tennis, you know, uh, good fields on both the, the men's and women's sides. ATP Masters event, Premier 5, but you usually get a pretty good field, a better field in Cincy than you do in, like, Montreal or Toronto for the girls. But, uh, yeah, I just think it's great. I think the facilities are awesome. I think that the hotels are cheap. Uh, renting a car is relatively inexpensive there to the extent that you need it. The food is not expensive. Um, the food court food is really great. Um, you get up close and personal on the practice courts. You can get um, up close on the stadium court too. With stadium the, court with, as for well. press, if you have the, uh, oh yeah, for they let press. you they let you sit in the uh, photo pit. Photo pit, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. But yeah, no, just for from fan from a fan perspective, I just think that it's such a good deal, Cincinnati. Um, it's and and you know you go there just for the tennis. It's not, I mean it's in Mason, Ohio. There's not a lot to do in Mason, Ohio. But if you know where to go, you can go sit at the bar with players at the player hotels. I mean everybody's just really chill and relaxed and kind of zoned out because they know that after that they got to go to new york yeah so everybody's kind of in like kind of a midwesty kind of mood like they're not really like stoked and happy they're just kind of like chilled out um so and, I would say Cincy. and a lot of people we should say of players anyway are, and we'll talk about this more when we get to cincinnati and do shows from there um, but a lot of players aren't happy to be in middle america and generally are miserable in terms of what mason has to offer off court but on court exactly. in terms of being a pure Judging within the grounds of the tournament, I think it's very, very hard to find many tournaments in the world that are more bang for buck and satisfying and accessible for everyone at every level than Cincinnati. So I always recommend to people on the East Coast or within range, even ahead of U.S. Open. U.S. Open's nice if you want like the Grand Slam atmosphere and that sort of buzz to it and best of five matches or whatever else and the importance of the matches. But in terms of just seeing your favorite players, if you like the top players, go to Cincinnati. Yeah, and I would say that Cincy is a really good ticket. Obviously, we always say, like, you know, go in the early rounds and, you know, you can see more. But I feel like Cincy is a reliable, good, like, finals ticket. Yeah, and like, it's if a you good all spend, the way through, everywhere. Yeah, if you want to spend the money to buy, like, finals tickets to Cincy for Saturday and, like, fr- let's say Saturday and Sunday, maybe Friday, if you can get the extra day off, and you fly in or you come in and you go those three days, because that's when the stadium is going to be the most packed. And the, I mean, when that center court gets like packed out, it's really cool. And the crowd really gets atmosphere. into it. It's a really cool atmosphere. When John Isner's playing, it's even more hilarious because mm-hmm. um, it gets very America. But it's cool. I mean, I like it. And the food's really good there. I actually really like the food. The food is good. They just switched. I don't know if you saw the email we got about this a few months ago. But they switched the official ice cream provider at the <gasps> tournament. It's not all, United Dairy Farmers? No, it's now going to be Grater's, which is like the other famous Ooh! one in Cincy, which I think is kind of an upgrade. <gasps> So better. I'm excited about this. And they have the Skyline Chili. They have all the burritos, Greek food, whatever. It's a tournament to go for tennis and eating. Yeah. 
So which you know Midwest. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. No, so that would probably that's definitely my favorite of the U.S. Open series. Now, to be fair, I've never been to Canada, so I haven't done the Toronto or Montreal. I haven't been to Washington either. Yeah, I haven't been to Washington. But in terms of my least favorites of the U.S. Open series, I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. But I would have to say San Diego. Oh yeah. Yeah, it just it just wasn't run great, and it got better. The thing is that when it came back, and it was no, it obviously was no longer the Acura Classic and the LA tournament, the women's tournament in LA that was held at the Home Depot Center was like gone. So it, was, it basically became the, the San Diego one. And I don't know, it was just was like really hard. It was never really pulling a great field. So I felt like, cause I would spend the whole week there cause it's held in San Diego, which is beautiful. And it's almost like the opposite of Cincy where like you go to San Diego to enjoy San Diego. And then by the way, there's a tennis tournament. Yeah. And, but the tennis was never really all that great. Like yeah. I, I went to since I went to San Diego every year, and I can't really tell you of too many memorable moments other than Petco sprinting off the court to vomit, yeah, and Clabes uh, wringing out her ponytail in front of Snecky, but yeah, and like Dominica Sabolkova jumping into the pool. I don't know, but those weren't. I mean, it wasn't always. Great. It wasn't a great field in terms of no, in terms of its it level. Really it wasn't, wasn't great for a premiere. So and the food was terrible. Mm. And and Bojani Jovanovsky could not find the place. It's because subconsciously she didn't want to find the place. <laughs> yeah, so don't blame her. So that's my least favorite. Okay, um, I've yeah, I have been to just Washington, Cincinnati, and the U.S. Open. I guess I've never been to the California ones because geography-wise, it doesn't make any sense to go out there this time of year. And haven't been to Canada. Might this year. Might make a cameo in Montreal, possibly, but probably not. Yeah, I like Washington. It's not, I would never call it a destination tournament, but if it's your local tournament, you're pretty well served. It's some very solid tennis and uh, really good main stadium. One of the best, I think, on the tour in terms of just sight lines, intimacy, and feel and all that stuff. Yeah, it's a nice place, if, but it's not. If you're make, making a destination trip because of the players on offer, I would always pick Cincinnati over it. That's what I have to say about that. And U.S. Open is, is a whole lot of. Right, U.S. Everything. Open is its own beast and. I think most people know I don't really love the U.S. Open myself personally, but I also understand that if you want to feel like you are at an event, the U.S. Open beats out all the other slams in terms of feeling like you are at something big and boisterous and loud, loud and full of energy and something exciting is going to happen. You know, I mean, like Wimbledon obviously has its very unique um, characteristics that make it feel really, really special. Like I never get sick of walking through the through the gates at Wimbledon. But and walking up to the press center, but it also feels sleepy and calm, and you don't really—it doesn't feel like something exciting is happening. Yeah. It's just kind of like, oh well, this is very pleasant and very nice. Whereas the U.S. Open, you feel like every match is like do or die for some reason. Like there's just like this energy of desperation there. And it's kind of the last slam of the year, which I think adds to that. Like there's yeah. nothing immediately over the horizon if you lose. If you lose, your dream just died. Yeah, your season's over. Yeah, we'll look forward to that sort of desolation when we get there. Yes. One speaking of desolate, one last question we'll do uh, came from Joey Hanf, aka the Tennis Nerds, who asks us which American man, not named Isner or Query, but I'll take Query out of it because I don't think Query is in a league of his own right now. Which American man, not named Isner, will make headlines during the U.S. Open series? So we haven't talked much about the American men's tennis scene in a while, even though we are Americans, because. We just want to pretend it doesn't exist, I guess. Um, John Isner is number 12 right now. And then there's a sharp drop to Query at 62. Steve Johnson, 64. Jack Sock, 69. Donald Young, 70. Bradley Klon, 77. uh, Smichek, 112. Kudla, 122. And so on down the line. Harrison, 143. Uh, Do you see anything blooming on this hardcore season? These players will get a lot of looks at draws that are not loaded. Especially talk about an Atlanta or yeah. Winston-Salem or Washington, even a little bit less. But they'll have I mean, chances if, and they'll have crowds. Gonna, yeah, if I'm going to pick a player that's going to outperform, I mean, I guess on some level you got to pick Sock. But yeah. but can he do it consistently? I don't trust that guy for consistency these days. So I don't know. But we obviously know he's he's obviously capable of, of a big upset. He beat Isner at Newport. So I guess him. But I, I, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be excited about potentially with Query. I, I was impressed with his match against Sanga at Wimbledon. I thought he played it with a, a really impressive level of intensity. He was playing like he cared. Yeah. And there's if hunger. He can trans- 
yeah, there was hunger. And if he can translate that um, into the hard court season, then then maybe there's something there. That's probably I would pick Query is by far the most better than his ranking right now. I mean, Query has been a top 20 guy and he's at number 62 now. And if he got his his sort stuff anywhere near together, he would be a top 40 player easily just on his basic natural talents and height and serve and all that stuff. But yeah, this is definitely not a high watermark moment for American men's tennis, nor will it necessarily be in 2015 either. I'm not sure unless Sock really gets together. And Johnson, Steve Johnson's had a quietly very solid year getting up to the 64 after being out of the top 150, I think, at the beginning. So yeah, but I mean, just you have to really lower the bar for what you get excited about with American men's tennis now in a way you don't with women, with uh, Sloan and Madison and yeah, they're right upcomers. So there'll be a, there'll be a lot of talk about it in this season. So I guess I figured we should just sort of mention it now. But yeah, I mean, that's always going to be the problem with the men's game right now is that it's one thing to go through a slump at the top. But if you don't have the talent pool below in the middle, then nothing it, in the yeah, middle anywhere, but yeah. even just below like the but below. I don't mean like outside top 100. I meant like young. OK, yeah. Like future talent. If they're you really see, younger like, guys. Yeah, right. Then there's just kind of just not a lot of hope. It's just kind of a desolate space, yeah. right? Because you're basically hoping for Isner to do something really good. And outside of that, you don't see that things are going to be changing anytime soon. Whereas I feel like with the women, okay, like Serena hasn't had a good season. And, you know, who knows how many years she has left in her. But you can still see the future of American tennis every week when you when you tune in and, and you see them doing something good. So... That's why there's just going to be yeah. more hope with the women's side than the men's. And even something like a Lauren Davis or a Allison Risk. I mean, the kind of results they're getting, even though they're not getting a lot of attention on the women's yeah. side, because I don't think we think they have the upside of someone like a Madison or a Sloan. If they were doing that on the men's side, they'd be getting so much attention right now. Because those are solidly near top 40 players who are young and getting some decent wins over big players. If they were guys, we'd be salivating over them. And so it's just the bar is so much lower for the men now. And even still, I mean, we have a good crop of juniors. They had seven of the last 16 in the boys' draw at Wimbledon, which is promising. So hopefully get enough sort of bullets in the chamber there that some of them hit a reasonable target eventually at the pro level. But that's probably not going to be for another four or five years at the soonest. So time will tell. But for right now, just sort of brace yourself for a lot of bemoaning in the next two months because it's going to happen. Yep. Thank you guys for listening to the show, parts A and B of it. Uh, we appreciate all your questions and keep them coming for future episodes. Uh, we will be in touch with you shortly with all sorts of new stuff from our sojourns at the tournaments, uh, both in Stanford and Washington, and then together in Cincinnati. In the meantime, you can follow us when you're not listening by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can also Follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your podcasting uh, platform app of choice is or whatever to get new episodes immediately so you never have to go a second without us. Thanks for listening once again and see you later, guys. Bye. See y'all.